The place is Troas, a city near the ancient ruins of Troy. The setting is the culmination of the Apostle Paul's seven-day visit, the last time the Troas believers will get to hear him teach in person. So they meet after work on a Sunday evening for a marathon night. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, introduces this exciting episode in Dr. Luke's writing from the perspective of a critical outsider. You know, I think that the church, maybe they should have been sued. I mean, this church was meeting three stories up in a tenement building. The lighting was horrible. There was no ventilation. And the preacher spoke on and on and on and on. You ever been in a meeting like that? It's too hot. You can't breathe. How many of you have ever fallen asleep in church? So who can blame? The guy fell, this young teenager fell three stories to the ground, and he was dead. I can just see the news media in Dallas now. City church sued for negligence. I mean, this place would never have passed any fire code at all. But it all depends upon your perspective. I just told you this story from the perspective of a skeptic, of a critic. In other words, if I gave you those facts and it was presented on the news like that, then you would all be up in arms. Yeah, I think maybe that church should be sued. They're negligent. The preacher went on and on and on. And, of course, the young man fell out of the window. Every situation that you face, every piece of literature that you read, every newscast you hear, there's a point of view, and you have a point of view. And I just told you the story that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 20. I want you to turn your Bible to Acts chapter 20 today. I just told you the story of the raising of Lucky. Eutychus, his name in Greek means Lucky. And so there's a really interesting play in this. We've got a young teenager that from a human standpoint didn't look like he was lucky at all. And we have Dr. Luke giving us an opportunity to look at what it was like to meet with a group of believers in the first century church. What in the world did believers do in the first century when they got together? Okay? In fact, from a Roman Catholic background, every single time that you got together, you celebrated Mass at the center of the service. If you're from my background as a Plymouth Brethren, at the end of every service in the early morning, we would have all sat in a circle and then we would break bread. Though we're totally different as far as Christendom is concerned, some even raised in churches where they have worship for a couple hours, and, and then you have a meal, and you have a marathon teaching, and the service goes all day long. Then we debate in Christendom, like some of you from churches where you can't use any musical instruments because the New Testament never mentioned that. Other ones are you from churches where they bang everything you can imagine. They play trumpets and cymbals and everything. Have you ever wondered what was it like to worship in the first century church? Well, we're going to get a chance to do that because Acts chapter 20 gives us the chance to be able to just have a vignette, a little episode where we actually get to see what the early church did when they gathered together on the first day of the week. But before we get there, before we get there, Dr. Luke has one of these travel narratives, and he's setting us up for the rest of the book of Acts. When you're studying the book of Acts, we're now in the final stage. As we come to Acts chapter 20, we're starting a journey that's going to take the Apostle Paul from Greece and northern 
Greece, which is Macedonia. He's going to take him from what's now modern-day Turkey. He's going to sail back to the Holy Land, back to Syria that's very much on our minds and hearts these days. He's going to come down the coast, and eventually he's going to go to Jerusalem. And then a lot of exciting things are going to happen in Jerusalem, which Dr. Luke will set us up for in the passage today. And I want you to start to make those connections. And then the Apostle Paul is going to be taken. He's going to have an expense-paid trip care of the Roman government to the capital of the world, Rome, and that's where the book of Acts is going to end. So that'll set you up. One of the things we're trying to teach you to do is to read the Scripture the way you would another book. The book of Acts is a book. If you're going to understand it, you've got to read chapter 1 through Acts chapter 28. Let Dr. Luke set it up, and I'm trying to give you the tools to help you be able to do that. One of the tools is Dr. Luke sets you up by giving you a travel narrative. So look at Acts chapter 20 as we pick up our story today. It says, after the uproar ceased. Can anybody tell me what the uproar was? Somebody raise their hand quickly and tell me what was the uproar after the uproar ceased. It was great as Diana of the Ephesians. Remember the uproar? You see how Dr. Luke expects you read the previous chapter, only there aren't the chapter divisions in the original first century document. But remember all the stuff we had about the riot in the temple of Artemis. So after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and he put his tail between his legs, and he ran away from the city of Ephesus. Is that what it says? No. What did he do? He gathered the disciples together. By the way, that's what you're supposed to be, and that's what I'm supposed to be. These aren't just holy 12, the original apostles. A disciple is one that's a pupil under a teacher. It's one that's following a master. It's one that's obeying a great rabbi. In this case, it's used of those who decided to follow the ultimate rabbi, which is Jesus. And in the city of Ephesus, there were lots and lots of people that had decided to put themselves under the teaching of Jesus. They trusted in Jesus as their Savior. So the Apostle Paul gathers them together. What did he do? He encouraged them. This is the dominant word in this early part of this little episode. The Apostle Paul, everywhere he goes, he comes alongside people. The word is parakaleo. Kaleo means to call, para means alongside. You put it all together in Greek, and it means you're someone that comes alongside someone. What are you supposed to come along someone to do? You're supposed to come alongside someone to encourage them, to counsel them, to bless them. This is the word for counseling. It's the dominant word in the New Testament for counseling. So if you're a counselor, the kind of a person that you're an encourager, you're someone that when you come alongside, when the person leaves you, they go, man, it was like a breath of fresh air. If you were with the Apostle Paul as a believer, just spending time with him would be uplifting. It would be encouraging. Dr. Luke is painting us this picture of believers meeting with this great apostle, but he's personal, he's relational. A lot of the evangelical leaders that I've known since I was a kid, some of them are not very personal. They're totally focused on getting to Jerusalem, getting to Rome. They don't have anything to do with calling disciples. There's not warmth there. I want you to know that that's not the biblical New Testament faith that the apostle Paul was one of the founders of. We need to be encouraging. We need to be counseling. We need to be warm. We need to be coming alongside one another. And the Apostle Paul, even after the riot, is doing that. It says, after he encouraged them, he said bye. He said farewell. And he departed from Macedonia. So he's going across the little bit of ocean there. He goes from what's now modern-day Turkey into what's now modern-day Greece. And he comes to the northern part of Greece, which is Macedonia. 
Remember, that's what he did when he first started the entrance into Europe. He left Troas and went to Macedonia, and you should all say, praise God, because that's why we're here today. If Paul didn't go into Europe, if the gospel would have gone the other way, maybe it wouldn't have penetrated Europe. But it penetrated Europe because the Apostle Paul made this journey from Troas to Macedonia. When he had gone through all those regions and he gave them much encouragement. So what's Paul doing as he travels to all these different places? He's giving them much, tell me, encouragement. See how Dr. Luke encourages us. And he came to Greece. So now he's come down to the south into probably the city of Corinth. Okay, what's he doing? He's encouraging them. He was there for three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he decided to set sail for Syria. He decided to return from Macedonia. So as the Apostle Paul is in the city of Corinth, I know that from the epistles uh, to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is in this major city in the southern part of Greece. What happens when he's in this city? Who rises up against him? The religious leaders, in this case, the Jewish leaders. Dr. Luke is setting you up. Everywhere the Apostle Paul goes, he starts out in the synagogue, and what happens in the synagogue? Some of the Jews believe what the Apostle Paul is telling them, that Jesus is the Messiah, from their Jewish scriptures, and they respond. Those that turn away from the Lord, what do they do? They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They get angry, and they attack him, and you'll have that. That's going to build now. Dr. Luke just set you up when Paul goes to Jerusalem there's going to be a plot against them from Jews from Asia. And they're going to be attacking him, saying, you're rejecting the laws of Moses. You're rejecting the customs of Israel. Dr. Luke is setting you up, and I want you to learn to be perceptive of that. That's why you need to read it from beginning to end. Let the story build. Just like in a TV show, when you're watching TV, they suddenly give you a clue, and then three weeks later in the episode, they'll have an episode about what they set you up for. Anybody ever noticed that in a movie, in a book? Well, God's Word is the ultimate story, and he's telling the story in real life. Dr. Luke just sets you up for the story to tell because that's going to build the opposition against the Apostle Paul. What can we learn about that? What do you do when you face opposition? Do you quit? What do you do when you suffer for Christ and people don't understand you? And they say all kinds of bad rumors against you. Anybody ever faced a whole city in a riot because of what you were saying? You see, this is the real thing. This is not cultural Christianity. This isn't, I'm a Texan, I eat apple pie, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Bible church, I go to church, and I'm a good school person, I've got a good job. It's awesome to be a cultural Christian. This is the real thing. The Apostle Paul is eventually going to lose his life because of the opposition against him. That's why you can trust him. It's not cultural. It's not just something he does. It's his life. He's seen the resurrected Christ very powerfully. Dr. Luke just sets you up for a major tension that's going to be rising in the story. It's the Apostle Paul versus the people that raised him, the religious people that, that taught him the law, the tragedy that they missed what the, all the Mosaic Scriptures were pointing to, the incredible Jesus that Paul met on the Damascus Road. Then it tells us about the Apostle Paul after he spent three months, there was a plot that was made against him by the Jews as he set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia because if you're on a ship and your enemies want to get you, you're trapped. If you're traveling by land up to the north, you can run and hide behind some boulders and stuff. That's kind of the idea. Then it gives us all the names. You can read the names. You have Sopater, the Berean. Anybody remember anything about Berea? 
Berea is right near Lystra and Derbe. When the Apostle Paul went to the synagogue of Berea, they were more noble than those who were at Thessaloniki. Does anybody remember why? Good, you got it. They studied the word. They were more noble because they studied their Jewish scriptures to see whether or not what the Apostle Paul taught them was the truth. Is that a good example or a bad example? So what are you supposed to do? Every time you hear somebody speak, what are you supposed to do? Search the scriptures to see whether or not what they're telling you is true. So Dr. Luke tells us, so Peter the Berean, the son of Paris, you might meet him in heaven, so remember his name. He was with Paul. Then we have some Thessalonians from the city where there was some opposition. The Thessalonians with Aristarchus and Secundus. We had Gaius from the city of Derby. This is from Paul's second missionary journey. And Timothy, who's from the city of Lystra, but Dr. Luke doesn't tell us. And Timothy is a young guy. Dr. Luke is an older guy, so we got a mixture of young and old. We've got some Thessalonians that are from the area, and we've got some Gentiles. We've got Timothy is a Jew because his mother was a Jew. It says we have Tychicus and Trophimus. They're Asians. So what do we have? We've got a multi-generational, multi-ethnic group of people traveling with the Apostle Paul. Now, it says, these went on ahead. They were waiting for us at Trez, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. That would be after the feast of Passover. That's the feast when Jesus died on the cross and then rose again. So Dr. Luke is reminding us of some of those events that he told us about in the book of Luke. It says, after five days, he came to Trez, where he stayed for seven days. Now, I want to stop here because now we're going to give us the episode about the raising of Eutychus. But before he does that, I want you to think. One of the biggest charges against evangelists, I was raised an evangelist son, is that evangelists are in it just for the money. How many of you have ever had unbelievers tell you that traveling evangelists that do revivals that jump from city to city are just in it for the money? Okay, Dr. Luke just told you Paul was not in it for the money. You said, how do you know it? He took seven men, representatives from all the different churches that were part of his missionary outreach. And why are they there? Because he's collecting, you know from the book of 2 Corinthians, he's collecting a large purse of money. And the reason he's collecting that purse of money is the Jerusalem believers, the Jewish followers of the Messiah Jesus, have been in a really bad famine. And they're hungry. It's just like the big repression we had five years ago. Only much worse. Because in the ancient world, you can't fly food in from California if we have a drought in Texas. You got me? So Jerusalem is in a big downturn. The Apostle Paul wants to break the divide between Jews and Gentiles in the first century world. Jews wouldn't eat with most of you in this room because you're not Jewish, because you're unclean. People that you're divided from, you think that they're unclean. In the Old South, that's why you didn't go to the bathroom in the same bathroom as African-Americans. That's why the whites wouldn't drink from the same fountains. Those are very deep-seated things. You declare someone unclean, and then the next thing, you can get rid of them being a human being, and you can reject them. Those are very powerful influences, and they're still present with us. And the only way to overcome that is you got to get together with the person that you think is unclean. you got to eat with them. You got to work with them. You got to pray with them. And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. He took this mixture of people and he got Jews and Gentiles to 
meet each other's needs. The Apostle Paul is going to take thousands of dollars and give it to the Jerusalem church to tell them your Gentile brothers and sisters care. And that's one of the things I want you in the future Midlothian Bible Church. As Midlothian changes, I want us to have hearts that are like Paul's. Amen? We've got to break down those divisions. And you need to watch in your conversation when the person's an outsider. When you have the insiders and the outsiders, how do you relate? Because that can be tearing apart what Jesus is trying to do. It's really powerful. The second thing I want you to know, the Apostle Paul has all these guys because they're taking care of the money. If you are involved in a church family where only the pastor takes care of the finances, a lot of churches I go to, the pastor leads the church. He decides salaries. He decides all that happens with the money. In your little league, I'll spread out the application, in your little league, in your midget league football, in your school funds, when they're raising, you know, like fundraisers, you need to be a group of people that understand, all of you that are involved in accounting know you need to have accountability, and you have accountability by having open books that are diversified. People can look at them. It's amazing to me that a lot of people, when it comes to the church, they do things in church that would never, never go in proper accounting and business. And we need to be really aware of that. I want you to know, like Kim, for example, is in charge of our finances, and you can have him lay out spreadsheets, have him lay out what all your offerings go to. I have no idea. In 40 years, I've never made a decision about salaries. I don't even know what salaries are. There's a reason for that. Because when I was a young man, I read this passage, and the Apostle Paul didn't control finances. He let a group of laymen, you might say. And it's amazing to me over the years how many churches I'm exposed to where the church gets in deep trouble because one man is abusing finances. So use your head, and I want to whet your appetite for how powerful that even a little travel narrative is in teaching us wisdom. So all the organizations, not just in church, but all the 5013C organizations, all the nonprofit organizations, that's the place where money can be stolen so easily. And the apostle Paul didn't say, well, I'm a great apostle. I'm a man of integrity. Just believe me. He said, no, I have seven guys that travel with me. They're overseeing the money. It's not just under me. Now we have this story of Eutychus. Look what happened. This is on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. So what's one of the things that we want to do regularly when we gather together? Good. We want to have communion. I want to encourage you in your Sunday school classes. In your Sunday school classes, do you ever break bread? Why not? You can do that. In your small group, have communion. That's what the early church did. They gathered in homes and they broke bread. It's not just a religious thing. For me, as the reverend to be able to do. All of you as families can do it. That's what the early church did. They broke bread. And then Paul talked with them, intending to depart, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So he preached a long, long time. How many of you have ever been in a service where the preacher spoke till midnight? Okay, there were many lanterns in the upper room. Luke is setting us up where they gathered. A young man sitting in the window sank into a deep sleep, and Paul talked still on and on and on, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. 
But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arm. He said, don't be alarmed. His life is still in him. And when Paul had gone up, he broke bread and they ate. He conversed with them a long time until daybreak. And then they departed. And so they took the youth away alive and they were no little bit comforted. So what happened? There's a young guy sitting in the window, three stories up. It's not good ventilation. There's lamps that are burning. See how Dr. Luke sets up the story. The guy can't breathe very well. How many of you have ever been in a hot room where the air isn't so good, smelling vaporous fumes, and the preacher goes on and on and on, not just for 40 minutes, he goes on for hours, and suddenly you lose it, bang, three stories down. The Apostle Paul goes downstairs, and he gets down on top of Eutychus, and he hugs him, but what he really was doing is what Elijah did and what Elisha did, what they did in the, in the ancient world, Elijah the prophet was able to raise the dead. Elisha, the prophet, was able to raise the dead. Dr. Luke tells you the story of Jesus raising the dead. The reason I'm telling you this story about the Apostle Paul and the reason we focus on our church family about the inspired word of God is because Dr. Luke traveled with Paul and the Holy Spirit was breathing through Dr. Luke. He was with Paul in this incident. And so he was able to tell us an inspired account and give us God's point of view about this meeting. And that's what I want you to open your heart to this morning. See, I told you the story as we started out today. I started out telling you the story the way critics would tell the story. These Christians are stupid. They do dumb things. They preach way too long. And they should be sued for liability. It all depends upon your point of view. That's what I want you to think about. I want to ask you, what's your point of view? Dr. Lucas tells us a story where the gospel invades lives. He invades your life and mine. And he gives new life to those that never believed they could be part of God's family. The message of the good news that Christ died and rose again takes a married couple that's blown apart and they become cold and the resurrection power of Jesus causes them to fall in love with each other. That person that you dreamt could never, 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 because they cursed you every day at work and they, they used Jesus as a cuss word. You never dreamt they could be born again. And suddenly they're raised to life. The person you never dreamed can be life. How many of you would like to be in a place, in a room, in a town, in a city, in a country where that's happening? You want that? Well, as American believers, we think it's meeting in the right place. It's getting the sermon just right. It's making sure it's not too long. We're critics. And I want to share something with you. It's all in your point of view. The critics leave and miss the raising from the dead. They left because they needed to do something else. I share with you about Paul and his departure from Troas. The Troas believers would never see their great apostle again in the flesh. But they saw the dead raised and they continue to see the Holy Spirit changing lives throughout Asia Minor. Their trust was in the resurrection power of Jesus. It wasn't in Paul. 
It wasn't in the form that they used in their worship. It was they deep in their souls believed we follow a Savior that when he says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus, come forth. I want to share with you, I could stand in front of Lazarus's grave from now till eternity, and he ain't coming forth. You can play beautiful music. You can get the lights just right. You can use great rhetoric, and Lazarus isn't coming forth. But if the Spirit of God shows up and it's Jesus that says, Lazarus, come forth, all of hell can't keep him from raising from the dead. And what I want you to learn from this message is the resurrection power to change lives that gave a young man life and brought great comfort to believers. That same power is available in your heart and available in my heart and want to do even greater things than happened in Troas more than 2,000 years ago.